CD2 Corporal Cheery Littlebottom pronounced her name Cherie. She was a she, and therefore a rare bloom in Ankh-Morpork. It wasn't that dwarfs weren't interested in sex. They saw the vital need for fresh dwarfs to leave their goods to and continue the mining work after they'd gone. It was simply that they also saw no point in distinguishing between the sexes anywhere but in private. There was no such thing as a dwarfish female pronoun or, once the children were on solids, any such thing as women's work. Then Cheery Littlebottom had arrived in Ankh-Morpork and had seen that there were men out there who did not wear chain mail or leather underwear, at least of the sort she normally wore, but did wear interesting colours and exciting makeup. And these men were called women, and, just lately, Corporal Nobbs. And in the little bullet head the thought had arisen, Why not me? Now she was being denounced in cellars and dwarf bars across the city as the first dwarf in Ankh-Morpork to wear a skirt. It was hard-wearing brown leather and as objectively erotic as a piece of wood, but, as some of the older dwarfs would point out, somewhere under there were his knees. They couldn't bring themselves to utter the word her. Worse, they were now finding that among their sons were some they choked on the word, daughters. Cheery was only the frothy bit on the tip of the wave. Some younger dwarfs were shyly wearing eyeshadow and declaring that, as a matter of fact, they didn't like beer. A current was running through dwarf society. Dwarf society was not against a few well-thrown rocks in the direction of those bobbing on the current, but Captain Carrot had put the word on the street that this would be assault on an officer, a subject on which the watch held views and however short the miscreants, their feet really would not touch the ground. Cheery had retained her beard and round iron helmet, of course. It was one thing to declare that you were female, but quite unthinkable to declare that you weren't a dwarf. Open and shut case, sir, she said when she saw Vimes come in. They opened the window in the back room to get in, a very neat job, and didn't shut the front door after they left. Smashed the scones case. There's the glass all around the stand. Didn't take anything else that I can see. Left a lot of footprints in the dust. I took a few pictures, but they're scuffed up and weren't much good in the first place. That's about it, really. No dropped fag ends, wallets or bits of paper with an address on them, said Vimes. No, sir, they were inconsiderate thieves. They certainly were, said Carrot, grimly. A question that springs to mind, said Vimes, is... Why does it reek even worse a cat's piss now? It is rather sharp, isn't it? said Cheery. With a hint of sulphur, too. Constable Ping said it was like this when he arrived, but there's no cat's prints. Vimes crouched down and looked at the broken glass. How do we find out about this? he said, prodding a few fragments. Constable Ping heard the tinkle, sir. He went round the back and saw the window was open. Then the crooks got out through the front door. Sorry about that, sir, said Ping, stepping forward and saluting. He was a cautious-looking young man who appeared permanently poised to answer a question. We all make mistakes, said Vimes. You heard glass break. Yes, sir, and, and someone swore. Really? 
What did they say? Eh, bugger, sir. And you went round the back and saw the broken window and you... I called out, is there anyone there, sir? Really? And what would you have done if her voice had said no? No, no don't answer that. What happened next? Eh, uh, I heard a lot more glass break and when I got round to the front, the door was open and they were gone. So I legged it back to the yard and told Captain Carrot, sir, knowing he sets a lot of store by this place. Thank you. Uh, Ping, is it? Yes, sir. Entirely unasked, but obviously prepared to answer, Ping said, It's a dialect word, meaning water meadow, sir. Off you go, then. The lance constable visibly sagged with relief and left. Vimes let his mind unfocus a little. He enjoyed moments like these, the, the little bowl of time when the crime lay before him and he believed that the world was capable of being solved. This was the time you really looked to see what was there, and sometimes the things that weren't there were the most interesting things of all. The scone had been kept on a plinth about three feet high, inside a case made of five sheets of glass forming a box that was screwed down on the plinth. They smashed the glass by accident, he said eventually. Really, sir? Look here, see? Vimes pointed to three loose screws neatly lined up. They were trying to take the box apart carefully. It must have slipped. But what's the point? said Carrot. It's just a replica, sir. Even if you could find a buyer, it's not worth more than a few dollars. If it's a good one, you could swap it with the real thing, said Vimes. Well, yes, I suppose you could try, said Carrot. There would be a bit of a problem, though. What is it? Dwarfs aren't stupid, sir. The replica has got a big cross carved into the underside, and it's only made of plaster in any case. Oh. But it was a good idea, sir, Carrot said encouragingly. You weren't to know. I wonder if the thieves knew. Even if they didn't, they wouldn't have hope of getting away with it, sir. The real scone is very well guarded, said Cheery. It's very rare that most dwarfs get a chance to see it. And other people would notice if you had a great lump of rock up your jumper, said Vimes, more or less to himself. So, this was a stupid crime, but it doesn't feel stupid. I mean, why go to all this trouble? The lock on that door is a joke. You could kick it right out of the woodwork. If I was going to pinch this thing, I could be in here and out again before the glasses stopped tinkling. What would be the point of being quiet at this time of night? The dwarf had been rummaging under a nearby display cabinet. She drew her hand out. Drying blood glistened on the blade of a screwdriver. See, said Vimes, something slipped and someone cut their hand. What's the point of all this, Carrot? Cats, piss and sulphur and screwdrivers. I hate it when you get too many clues. It makes it so damn hard to solve anything. He threw the screwdriver down. By sheer luck, it hit the floorboards tip first and stood there shuddering. I'm going home, he said. We'll find out what this is all about when it starts to smell. Vimes spent the following morning trying to learn about two foreign countries. One of them turned out to be called Ankh-Morpork. Uberwald was easy. It was five or six times bigger than the whole of the Stowe Plains and stretched all the way up to the hub. It was so thickly forested, so creased by little mountain ranges and beset by rivers, that it was largely unmapped. It was mostly unexplored too. Well, at least by proper explorers, just living there doesn't count. The people who lived there had other things in their mind, and the people from outside who came to explore went into the forests and never came out again. And for centuries no one had bothered about the place. 
You couldn't sell things to people hidden by too many trees. It was probably the coach road that had changed everything a few years back when they drove it all the way through to Genua. A road is built to follow. Mountain people had always gravitated to the plains, and in recent years Uberwald folk had joined them. The news got back home. There's money to be made in Ankh-Morpork. Bring the kids. You don't need to bring the garlic, though, because all the vampires work down the kosher butchers. And if you're pushed in Ankh-Morpork, you're allowed to push back. No one cares enough about you to want to kill you. Vimes could just about tell the difference between the Uberwald dwarfs and the ones from Copperhead, who were shorter, noisier, and rather more at home among humans. The Uberwald dwarfs were quiet, tended to scuttle around corners, and often didn't speak more Porkian. In some of the alleys off Treacle Mine Road, you could believe you were in another country. But they were what every copper desires in a citizen. They were no trouble. They mostly had jobs working for one another. They paid their taxes rather more readily than humans did. Although, to be honest, there were small piles of mouse droppings that yielded more money than most Ankh-Morpork citizens. And generally, any problems they had, they sorted out amongst themselves. If such people ever came to the attention of the police, it's usually only as a chalk outline. It turned out, though, that within the community, behind the grubby facades of all those tenements and workshops in Cable Street and Whalebone Lane, there were vendettas and feuds that had their origins in two adjoining mine shafts five hundred miles away and a thousand years ago. There were pubs you only drank in if you were from a particular mountain. There were streets you didn't walk down if your clan mined a particular load. The way you wore your helmet, the way you parted your beard, spoke complicated volumes to other dwarfs. They didn't even hand a piece of paper to Vimes. Then there's the way you krasak your gardruga, said Corporal Littlebottom. I won't even ask, said Vimes. I'm afraid I can't explain in any case, said Cheery. Have I got a gardruga, said Vimes. Cheery winced at the mispronunciation. Yes, sir, everyone has. But only a dwarf can krasak his properly, she said. Or hers, she added. Vimes sighed and looked down at the pages of scrawl in his notebook under the heading Uberwald. He wasn't strictly aware of it, but he treated even geography as if he was investigating a crime. Did you see who carved out the valley? Would you recognise that glacier if you saw it again? I'm going to make a lot of mistakes, Cheery, he said. I shouldn't worry about that, sir. Humans always do, but most dwarves can spot if you're trying not to make them. Are you sure you don't mind coming? Got to face it sooner or later, sir. Vimes shook his head sadly. I don't get it, Cheery. There's all this fuss about a female dwarf trying to act like... like... A lady, sir. Right. And yet no one says anything about Carrot being called a dwarf, but he's human. No, sir, like he says, he's a dwarf. He was adopted by dwarfs. He's performed the Igrad. He observes the Jakagra, insofar as that's possible in the city. He's a dwarf. He's six foot high. He's a tall dwarf, sir. We don't mind if he wants to be a human as well. Not even the Druddakak would have a problem with that. I'm running out of throat sweets here, Cheery. What was that? Look, sir, most of the dwarfs here are, well, I, I suppose you'd call them liberal, sir. They're mainly from the mountains behind Copperhead, you know. They get along with humans. Some of them even acknowledge that. They've got daughters, sir, but some of them are old-fashioned Uberwald dwarfs haven't got out so much. They act as if Bahrain Bloodaxe is still alive. That's why we call them Drudakak. Vimes had a go, 
but he knew that to really speak dwarfish you needed a lifetime study and, if at all possible, a serious throat infection. Above ground? Uh, they negatively... he faltered. They do not get out in the fresh air enough, Cheery supplied. Ah, right. And everyone thought the new king was going to be one of these? They say Albrecht's never seen sunlight in his life. His clan never goes above ground in daylight. Everyone was certain it'd be him. And as it turned out, it wasn't, thought Vimes. Some of the Uberwald dwarfs hadn't supported him, and the world had moved on. There were plenty of dwarfs around now who had been born in Ankh-Morpork. Their kids went around with their helmets on back to front and spoke dwarfish only at home. Many of them wouldn't know a pickaxe if you hit them with it. At least, if you hit them hard enough. They weren't about to be told how to run their lives by an old dwarf sitting on a stale bun under some distant mountain. He tapped his pencil on his notebook thoughtfully. And because of this, he thought, dwarfs are punching one another on my streets. I've seen more of those dwarf sedan chair things around lately, he said. You know, the ones carried by a couple of trolls. They have thick leather curtains. Dradakak, said Cheery. Very traditional dwarfs. If they have to go out in daylight, they don't look at it. I don't recall them a year ago, Cheery shrugged. There's lots of dwarfs here now, sir. The Dradakak feel they're among dwarfs now. They don't have to deal with humans for anything. They don't like us. They wouldn't even talk to a human. They're fairly choosy about talking to most dwarfs, to tell the truth. That's daft, said Vimes. How do they get food? You can't live on fungi. How do they trade ore at damn streams, get wood for shoring up their shafts? Well, either other dwarfs are paid to do it, or humans are employed, said Cheery. They can afford it. They're very good miners. Well, they own very good mines in any case. Sounds to me like they're a bunch of... Vimes stopped himself. He was aware that a wise man should always respect the folk ways of others, to use Carrot's happy phrase, but Vimes often had difficulty with this idea. For one thing, there were people in the world whose folk ways consisted of gutting other people like clams, and this was not a procedure that commanded, in Vimes, any kind of respect at all. "'I'm not thinking diplomatically, am I?' he said. Cheery watched him with a carefully blank expression. "'Oh, I don't know about that, sir,' she said. You didn't actually finish the sentence, and, well, a lot of dwarfs respect them, you know, feel better for seeing them. Vimes looked puzzled, then understanding dawned. Oh, I get it, he said. I bet they say things like, thank goodness people are keeping up the old ways, eh? That's right, sir. I suppose that inside every dwarf in Ankh-Morpork is a, a little part of him or her that knows real dwarfs live underground. Vimes doodled on his notepad. Back home, he thought. Carrot had innocently talked about dwarfs back home. To all dwarfs far away, the mountains were back home. It was funny how people were people everywhere you went, even if the people concerned weren't the people the people who had made up the phrase people are people everywhere had traditionally thought of as people. And even if you weren't virtuous, as you had been brought up to understand the term, you did like to see virtue in other people, providing it did not cost you anything. Why have these dr these traditional dwarfs come here, though? Ain't more porks full of humans. They must have their work cut out avoiding humans. They're needed, sir. Dwarf lore is complicated and there's often disputes, and they conduct marriages and that sort of thing. You make them sound more like priests. Dwarfs aren't religious, sir. 
Of course. Oh well. Thank you, Corporal. Off you go. Any fallout from last night? No sulphurous incontinent cats have come forward to confess? No, sir. The Campaign for Equal Heights has put out a pamphlet saying it was another example of the second-class treatment of dwarfs in the city, but it was the same one they always put out. You know, the one with blanks to fill in the details. Nothing changes, Cherry. See you tomorrow morning, then. Send detritus up. Why him? Hank Morpork was lousy with diplomats. It was practically what the upper classes were for, and it was easy for them because half the foreign bigwigs they'd meet were old chums they'd played wet towel tag with back at school. They tended to be on first-name terms, even with people whose names were Ahmed or Fong. They knew which forks to use. They hunted, shot and fished. They moved in circles that more or less overlapped the circles of their foreign hosts and were a long way from the rather grubby circles that people like Vimes went around in every working day. They knew all the right nods and winks. What chance had he got against a tie and a crest? Vetinari was throwing him amongst the wolves. And the dwarfs. And the vampires. Vimes shuddered, and Vetinari never did anything without a reason. Come in, Detritus. It always amazed Sergeant Detritus that Vimes knew he was at the door. Vimes had never mentioned that the office wall creaked and bent inwards as the big troll made his way along the corridor. You want to see me, sir? Yeah, sit down, man. It's this Obervalt business. Yes, sir. How do you feel about visiting the old country? Detritus's face remained impassive, as it always did when he was waiting patiently for things to make sense. Obervalt, I mean, Vimes prompted. Dunno, sir. I was just a pebble when we left there. Dad wanted a better life in the big city. There'd be a lot of dwarfs, Detritus. Vimes didn't bother to mention vampires and werewolves. Either of those who attacked a troll was making the last big mistake of its career in any case. Detritus carried a £2,000 draw crossbow as a hand weapon. That's OK, sir. I'm very modern about dwarfs. These might be a bit old-fashioned about you, though. Them deep-down dwarfs. That's right. I heard about them. There's still walls with trolls up near the hub, I hear. Tact and diplomacy will be called for. You have come to the right troll for debt, sir, said Detritus. You did push that man through that wall last week, Detritus. It was done with tact, sir. Quite a thin wall. Vimes let it go at that. The man in question had just laid out three watchmen with a club, which Detritus had broken in one hand before selecting the suitably tactful wall. See you tomorrow, then. Best dress armour, remember? Send Angua now, please. She's not here, sir. Last. Put out some messages for her, will ya? Igor lurched through the castle corridors, dragging one foot after the other in the approved fashion. He was Igor, son of Igor, nephew of several Igors, brother of Igors, and cousin of more Igors than he could remember without checking up in his diary. Igors did not change a winning formula, especially if it was green and bubbled. And as a clan, Igors liked working for vampires. Vampires kept regular hours, were generally polite to their servants, and an important extra didn't require much work in the bed-making and cookery department, and tended to have cool, roomy cellars where an Igor could pursue his true calling. This more than made up for those occasions when you had to sweep up their ashes. He entered Lady Margolotta's crypt and knocked politely on the coffin lid. 
It moved aside a fraction. Yes? Sorry to wake you in the middle of the afternoon, your lady Thip, but you did say... All right, and... It's going to be Vimes, Lady Thip. A dainty hand came out of the partly opened coffin and punched the air. Yes! Yes, Lady Thip. Well, well, Samuel Vimes, poor devil. Do the doggies know? Igor nodded. The Baron's Igor was also collecting a method, Lady Thip. And the dwarfs? It is an official appointment, Lady Thip. Everyone knows. His Grace, the Duke of Ankh-Morpork, Sir Samuel Vimes, commander of the Ankh-Morpork city, what? Then the midden has hit the windmill, Igor. Very well put, Lady Thip. No one likes a short tower of fit. I imagine, Igor, that he'll leave them behind. Let us consider a castle from the point of view of its furniture. This one has chairs, yes, but they don't look very lived in. There is a huge sofa near the fire, and that is ragged with use, but other furnishings look as if they're there merely for show. There is a long oak table, well polished and looking curiously unused for such an old piece of furniture. Possibly the reason for this is that on the floor around it there are a large number of white earthenware bowls. One of them has Father written on it. The Baroness Seraphine von Uberwald slammed shut Twerp's peerage irritably. The man is a, a nothing, she said. A paper man, a man of straw, an insult. The name Vimes goes back a long time, said Wolfgang von Uberwald, who was doing one-handed press-ups in front of the fire. So does the name Smith. What of it? Wolf changed to the other hand in mid-air. He was naked. He liked his muscles to get an airing. They shone. Someone with an anatomical chart could have picked out every one. They might also have remarked on the unusual way his blonde hair grew not only on his head, but down and across his shoulders as well. He is a duke, mother. Ha! Ankh Morpork hasn't even got a king. Nineteen, twenty, I hear stories about that, mother. Oh, stories! Sibyl writes silly little letters to me every year. Sam this, Sam that. Of course she had to be grateful for what she could get, but the man is just a thief-taker after all. I shall refuse to see him. You will not do that, mother, Wolf grunted. That would be twenty-nine, thirty, dangerous. What do you tell Lady Sibyl about us? Nothing. I don't write back, of course. A rather sad and foolish woman. And she still writes every year? Thirty-six, thirty-seven? Yes. Four pages, usually. And that tells you everything about her you need to know. There is your father. A flap in the bottom of a nearby door swung back and a large, heavy-set wolf trotted in. It glanced around the room and then shook itself vigorously. The baroness bridled. Gee, you know what I said. It is after six change when you come in from the garden. The wolf gave her her look and strolled behind a massive oak screen at the far end of the room. There was a noise, soft and rather strange, not so much an actual sound as a change in the texture of the air. The baron walked around from behind the screen, doing up the cord of a tattered dressing gown. The baroness sniffed. 
At least your father wears clothes, she said. Clothes are unhealthy, mother, said Wolf calmly. Nakedness is purity. The baron sat down. He was a large, red-faced man, insofar as a face could be seen under the beard, hair, moustache and eyebrows which were engaged in a bitter four-way war over the remaining areas of bare skin. Well, he growled. Fimes, the thief-taker from Enk Morpork, is going to be the alleged ambassador, snapped the baroness. Dwarfs? Of course they'll be told. The baron sat, staring at nothing with the same expression detritus used when a new thought was being assembled. "'Bad?' he ventured at last. "'Gee, I've told you about this a thousand times,' said the Baroness. "'You're spending far too much time changed. "'You know what you're like afterwards. "'Supposing we had official visitors?' "'Bite him!' "'You see, go on off to bed and don't come down until you're fit to be human.' "'Vimes could ruin everything, father,' said Wolfgang. "'He was now doing handstands using one hand. "'Gee, down!' "'The Baron stopped trying to scratch his ear with his leg. "'Do,' he said. "'Wolfgang's gleaming body dipped a moment as he changed hands again. "'City life makes men weak. "'Vimes will be fun. "'They do say he likes running, though,' he gave a little laugh. "'We shall have to see how fast he is.' His wife says he's very soft-hearted. Gee, don't you dare do that! If you're going to do that sort of thing, do it upstairs! The Baron looked only moderately ashamed, but readjusted his clothing anyway. Bandits, he said. Yes, they could be a problem at this time of the year, said Wolfgang. At least a dozen, said the Baroness. Yes, that should... Wolf grunted upside down. No, mother, you are being stupid. His coach must get here safely, you understand? When he is here, that is a different matter. The Baron's massive eyebrows tangled with a thought. Plan, King! Exactly, the Baroness sighed. I don't trust that little dwarf. Wolf somersaulted onto his feet. No, but trustworthy or not, he's all we've got. Vimes must get here with his soft heart. He may even be useful. Perhaps we should assist matters. Why? snapped the Baroness. Let Ank Morpok look after their own. There was a knock on the door while Vimes was having breakfast. Willikins ushered in a small, thin man in neat but threadbare black clothes, whose over-large head gave him the appearance of a lolly nearing the last suck. He carried a black bowler hat the way a soldier carries his helmet, and walked like a man who had something wrong with his knees. "'I'm so sorry to disturb your grace.' Vimes laid down his knife. He'd been peeling an orange. Sybil insisted he eat fruit. "'Not your grace,' he said. "'Just Vimes. "'Sir Samuel, if you must. "'Are you veterinary's man?' "'Inigo Skimmers. Uh, <clears throat> "'I am to travel with you to Uberwelt. "'Ah, you're the clerk who's going to do all the whispering and winking "'while I hand round the cucumber sandwiches, are you?' I will try to be of service, sir, although I'm not much of a winker. <clears throat> Would you like some breakfast? I ate already, sir. <clears throat> Vimes looked the clerk up and down. It wasn't so much that his head was big. It was simply that someone appeared to have squeezed the bottom half of it and forced everything up into the top. He was going bald, too, and had carefully teased the remaining strands of hair across the pink dome. 
It was hard to tell his age. He could be twenty-five and a big worrier, or a fresh-faced forty. Vimes inclined to the former. The man had a look of someone who'd spent his life watching the world over the top of a book. And there was that—well, was it a nervous laugh, a, a giggle, an unfortunate way of clearing his throat? And that strange way he walked. Not even some toast, uh, a piece of fruit? These oranges are fresh from Clatch. I really can recommend them. Vimes tossed one at the man. It bounced off his arm and Skimmer took a step backwards, mildly appalled at the upper class's habit of fruit hurling. Are you all right, sir? <clears throat> Sorry about that, said Vimes. I was carried away by fruit. He laid aside his napkin and got up from the table, putting his arm around Skimmer's shoulders. I'll just take you to the mildly yellow drawing room where you can wait, he said, walking him towards the door and patting him on the arm in a friendly way. The coaches are loaded up. Sybil is regrouting the bathroom, learning ancient Clatchin and doing all those other little last-minute things women always do. You're with us in the big coach. Skimmer recoiled. No, oh, I, I couldn't do that, sir. I, I'll travel with your retinue. <clears throat> if you mean cheering detritus, they're in there with us, said Vimes, noting the look of horror deepen slightly. You need four for a decent game of cards, and the road's as boring as hell for most of the way. And uh, your servants? Willikins and the cook and Sybil's maid are in the other coach. Oh. Vimes smiled inwardly. He remembered the saying from his childhood, too poor to paint, but too proud to whitewash. Bit of a tough choice, is it, he said. I'll tell you what, you can come in our coach, but we'll give you a hard seat and patronise you from time to time. How about that? I'm afraid you're making a mockery of me, Sir Samuel. <clears throat> no, but I may be assisting. And now, if you'll excuse me, I've got to nip down to the yard to sort out a few last-minute things. A quarter of an hour later, Vimes walked into the charge room at the yard. Sergeant Strong in the arm looked up, saluted, and then ducked to avoid the orange that was tossed at his head. Sir, he said, bewildered. Just testing, Strong in the arm. Did I pass, sir? Oh, yeah, keep the orange. It's full of vitamins. My mother always told me those things could kill you, sir. Carrot was waiting patiently in Vimes's office. Vimes shook his head. He knew all the places to tread in the corridor, and he knew he didn't make a sound, and he'd never once caught Carrot reading his paperwork, not even upside down. Just once, it'd be nice to catch him out at something. If the man was any straighter, you could use him as a plank. Carrot stood up and saluted. Yes, yes, we haven't got a lot of time for that now, said Vimes, sitting behind his desk. Anything new overnight? An unattributed murder, sir. A tradesman called Wallace Sonkey. Found in one of his own vats with his throat cut. No guild seal or note or anything. We're treating it as suspicious. Yes, I think that sounds fairly suspicious, said Vimes. Unless he has a record as a very careless shaver. What kind of vat? Er, uh, rubber, sir. Rubber comes in vats. Wouldn't he bounce out? No, sir, it's a uh, liquid in the vat, sir. He makes rubber things. Hang on, I remember seeing something once. Don't they make things by dipping them in the rubber? You make sort of the right shapes and dip them in to get gloves, boots, that sort of thing? Er, uh, that uh, sort of thing, sir. Something about Carrot's uneasy manner got through to Vimes, and the little file at the back of his brain eventually waved a card. Sonky, Sonky! Carrot, we're not talking about Sonky as in a packet of Sonkies, are we? 
Now Carrot was bright red with embarrassment. Yes, sir. My gods, what was he dipping in the fat? He'd been thrown in, sir, apparently. But he's practically a national hero. Sir? Captain, the housing shortage in Ankh-Morpork would be a good deal worse if it wasn't for old man Sonky and his penny-a-packet preventatives. Who'd want to do away with him? People do have views, sir, said Carrot coldly. Yes, you do, don't you, Vimes thought. Dwarfs don't hold with that sort of thing. Well, put some men on it. Anything else? A carter assaulted Constable Swires last night for clamping his cart. Assault? Tried to stamp on him, sir. Vimes had a mental picture of Constable Swires, a gnome six inches tall but a mile high in pent-up aggression. How is he? Well, the man can speak, but it'll be a little while before he can climb back on a cart again. Apart from that, it's all run-of-the-mill stuff. Nothing more about the scone theft? Not really. Lots of accusations in the dwarf community, but no one really knows anything. Like you say, sir, we'll probably know more when it goes bad. Any word on the street? Yes, sir, it's halt, sir. Sergeant Colon painted it at the top of Lower Broadway. The carters are a lot more careful now. Of course, someone has to shovel a manure off every hour or so. This old traffic thing is not making us very popular, Captain. No, sir, but we aren't popular anyway, and at least it's bringing in money for the city treasury. Uh, there is another thing, sir. Yeah? Have you seen Sergeant Angua, sir? Me? No, I was expecting her to be here. Then Vimes noticed just the very edge of concern in Carrot's voice. Something wrong? She didn't turn up for duty last night. It wasn't a full moon, so it's a bit odd. Nobby said she was rather concerned about something when they were on duty the other day. Vimes nodded. Of course, most people were concerned about something if they were on duty with Nobby. They tended to look at clocks a lot. Have you been to her lodgings? Her bed hadn't been slept in, said Carrot. Or her basket, either, he added. Well, I can't help you there, Carrot. She's your girlfriend. She's been a bit worried about the future, I think, said Carrot. Um, you... She, the, uh, werewolf thing. Vimes stopped, acutely embarrassed. It preys on her mind, said Carrot. Perhaps she's just gone somewhere to think about things. Like how on earth could she go out with a young man who, magnificent though he was, blushed at the idea of a packet of sonkies? That's what I hope, sir, Carrot said. She does that sometimes. It's really quite stressful being a werewolf in a big city. I know we'd have heard if she'd run into any trouble. There was the sound of a harness outside and the rattle of a coach. Vimes was relieved. Seeing Carrot worried was so unusual that it had had the shock of the unfamiliar. Well, we'll just have to go without her, he said. I want to be kept in touch about everything, Captain. A fake scone goes missing a week or two before a big dwarf coronation. That sounds like another shoe is about to drop and it might just hit me. And while you're about it, put the word out that I'm to be sent anything about Sonky, will you? I don't like mysteries. The clacks do a skeleton service as far as Ubervelt now, don't they? Carrot brightened up. It's wonderful, sir, isn't it? In a few months they say we'll be able to send messages all the way from Ankh-Morpork to Genoa in less than a day. Yes, indeed. I wonder if by then we'll have anything sensible to say to each other. Lord Vetinari stood at his window, watching the semaphore tower on the other side of the river. All eight of the big shutters facing him were blinking furiously. Black, white... White, black, white. Information was flying into the air. Twenty miles behind him, on another tower in Stolat, 
Someone was looking through a telescope and shouting out numbers. How quickly the future comes upon us, he thought. He always suspected the poetic description of time like an ever-rolling stream. Time, in his experience, moved more like rocks, sliding, pressing, building up force underground, and then, with one jerk that shakes the crockery, a whole field of turnips mysteriously slips sideways by six feet. Semaphore had been around for centuries, and everyone knew that knowledge had a value, and everyone knew that exporting goods was a way of making money. And then suddenly, someone realised how much money you could make by exporting to Genua by tomorrow, things known in Ankh-Morpork today. And some bright young man in the street of cunning artificers had been unusually cunning. Knowledge, information, power, words, flying through the air invisible. And suddenly the world was tap-dancing on quicksand. And in that case, the prize went to the best dancer. Lord Vetinari turned away, took some papers from a desk drawer, walked to a wall, touched a certain area, and stepped quickly through the hidden door that noiselessly swung open. Beyond was a corridor, lit by borrowed light from high windows and paved with small flagstones. He walked forward, hesitated, said, No, this is Tuesday, and moved his descending foot so that it landed on a stone that in every respect appeared to be exactly the same as its fellows, except that the ones around it were not good stones to tread on if it was a Tuesday. Anyone overhearing his progress along the passages and stairs might have caught muttered phrases on the lines of The moon is waxing, and Yes, it is before noon. A really keen listener would have heard the faint whirring and ticking inside the walls. A really keen and paranoid listener would have reflected that anything Lord Vetinari said aloud, even while he was alone, might not be totally worth believing. Not, certainly, if your life depended upon it. Eventually he reached a door which he unlocked. There was a large attic room beyond, suddenly airy and bright and cheerful with sunlight from the windows and the roof. It seemed to be a cross between a workshop and a storeroom. Several bird skeletons hung from the ceiling, and there were a few other bones on the work tables, along with coils of wire and metal springs and tubes of paint, and more tools, many of them probably unique, than you normally saw in any one place. Only a narrow bed wedged between a thing like a loom with wings and a large bronze statue suggested that someone actually lived there. They were clearly someone who was obsessively interested in everything. What interested Lord Vetinari right now was the device all by itself on a table in the middle of the room. It looked like a collection of copper balls balanced on one another. Steam was hissing gently from a few rivets, and occasionally the device went, Blup! And your lordship! Vetinari looked around. A hand was waving desperately at him from behind an upturned bench. And something made him look up as well. The ceiling above him was crusted with some brownish substance which hung from it like stalactites. Blup! With quite surprising speed, the patrician was behind the bench. Leonard Aquirm smiled at him from underneath his homemade protective helmet. I do apologise, he said. I'm afraid I wasn't expecting anyone to come in. I'm sure it will work this time, however. Blup. What is it? said Vetinari. Blup. I'm not quite sure, but I hope it's a... And then it was suddenly too noisy to talk. Leonard Aquirm never dreamed that he was a prisoner. If anything, 
He was grateful to Vetinari for giving him this airy workspace and regular meals and laundry and protecting him from those people who for some reason always wanted to take his perfectly innocent inventions designed for the betterment of mankind and use them for despicable purposes. It was amazing how many of them there were, both the people and the inventions. It was as if all the genius of a civilization had funneled into one head which was, therefore, in a constant state of highly inventive spin. Vetinari often speculated upon the fate of mankind should Leonard keep his mind on one thing for more than an hour or so. The rushing noise died away. Blup! Leonard peered cautiously over the bench and smiled broadly. Ah, happily we appear to have achieved coffee, he said. Coffee? Leonard walked over to the table and pulled a small lever on the device. A light brown foam cascaded into a waiting cup with a noise like a clogged drain. Different coffee, he said. Very fast coffee. I rather think you will like it. I'm calling this the very fast coffee machine. And that's today's invention, is it? said Vetinari. Well, yes. It would have been a scale model of a device for reaching the moon and other celestial bodies, but I was thirsty. How fortunate. Lord Vetinari carefully removed an experimental pedal-powered shoe-polishing machine from a chair and sat down. And I've brought you some more little messages. Leonard almost clapped his hands. Oh, good, and I've finished the other ones you gave me last night. Lord Vetinari carefully removed a moustache of frothy coffee from his upper lip. I beg your... all of them? You broke the ciphers on all those messages from Uberwelt? Oh, they were quite easy after I'd finished the new device, said Leonard, rummaging through the piles of paper on a bench and handing the patrician several closely written sheets. But once you realise that there are only a limited number of birth dates a person can have, and that people do tend to think the same way... Ciphers are really not very hard. You mentioned a new device, said the patrician. Oh, yes, the thingy. It's all very crude at the moment, but it suffices for these simple codes. Leonard pulled a sheet off something vaguely rectangular. It seemed to Vetinari to be all wooden wheels and long, thin spars, which, he saw when he moved closer, were inscribed thickly with letters and numbers. A number of the wheels were not round, but oval or heart-shaped or some other curious curve. When Leonard turned a handle, the whole thing moved with a complex oiliness, quite disquieting in something merely mechanical. And what are you calling it? Oh, you know me in names, my lord. I, I think of it as the engine for the neutralising of information by the generation of miasmic alphabets. But I appreciate that it does not exactly roll off the tongue. And Yes, Leonard? But it's not wrong, is it, reading other people's messages? Vetinari sighed. The worried man in front of him, who was so considerate of life that he carefully dusted around spiders, had once invented a device that fired lead pellets with tremendous speed and force. He thought it would be useful against dangerous animals. He'd designed a thing that could destroy whole mountains. He thought it would be useful in the mining industries. Here was a man who, in his tea-break, would doodle an instrument for unthinkable mass destruction in the blank spaces around an exquisite drawing of the fragile beauty of the human smile, with a list of numbered parts. And if you taxed him with it, he'd say, Ah, but such a thing would make war completely impossible, you see, because no one would dare use it. 
Leonard brightened up as the thought apparently struck him. But on the other hand, the more we know about one another, the more we will learn to understand. Now you asked me to construct some more ciphers for you. I'm sorry, my lord, but I must have misunderstood your requirements. What was wrong with the first ones I did? Vetinari sighed. I'm afraid they were unbreakable, Leonard. But surely... It's hard to explain, said Vetinari, aware that what to him were the lucid waters of politics was so much mud to Leonard. These new ones you have are merely devilishly difficult. Are you specified fiendishly, sir? said Leonard, looking worried. Oh, yes. There does not appear to be a common standard for fiends, my lord, but I did some research in the more accessible occult texts, and I believe these ciphers will be considered difficult by more than ninety-six per cent of fiends. Good. They may perhaps verge on the diabolically difficult in places. That is not a problem. I shall use them forthwith. Leonard still seemed to have something on his mind. It would still be so easy to make them arch-demonically diff— But these will suffice, Leonard, said Vetinari. My lord, Leonard almost wailed, I really cannot guarantee that sufficiently clever people will be unable to read your messages. Good. But, my lord, they will know what you are thinking. Vetinari patted him on the shoulder. No, Leonard, they will merely know what is in my messages. I really do not understand, my lord. No, but on the other hand, I cannot make exploding coffee. What would the world be like if we were all alike? Leonard's face clarified for a moment. I'm not sure, he said, but if you'd like me to work on the problem, I may be able to devise a... It was merely a figure of speech, Leonard. Vetinari shook his head ruefully. It often seemed to him that Leonard, who had pushed intellect into hitherto undiscovered uplands, had discovered there large and specialised pockets of stupidity. What would be the point of ciphering messages that very clever enemies couldn't break? You'd end up not knowing what they thought you thought they were thinking. There was one rather strange message from Uberwald, my lord, said Leonard, yesterday morning. Strange? It was not ciphered. Not at all. I thought everyone used codes. Oh, the sender and recipient are code names, but the message is quite plain. It was a request for information about Commander Vimes, of whom you have often spoken. Lord Vetinari went quite still. The return message was mostly clear, too, a certain amount of gossip. All about Vimes? Yesterday morning? Before I... My lord? Tell me, said the patrician. This message from Uberwald, it yields no clue at all to the sender. Sometimes, like a ray of light through clouds, Leonard could be quite perceptive. You think you might know the originator, my lord? Oh, in my younger days I spent some time in Uberwald, said the patrician. In those days rich young men from Ankh-Morpork used to go on what we called the Grand Sneer, visiting far-flung countries and cities in order to see at first hand how inferior they were. Or so it seemed, at any rate. Oh, yes, I spent some time in Uberwald. It was not often that Leonard of Quirm paid attention to what people around him were doing, but he saw the faraway look in Lord Vetinari's eye. You have fond memories, my lord? Hm? Oh, she was a very 
unusual lady, but, alas, rather older than me, said Vetinari. Much older, I have to say. But it was a long time ago. Life teaches us its small lessons, and we move on. There was that distant look again. Well, well, well. And no doubt the lady is now dead, said Leonard. He was not much good at this sort of conversation. Oh, I very much doubt that, said Vetinari. I have no doubt she thrives, he smiled. The world was becoming more interesting. Tell me, Leonard, he said, has it ever occurred to you that one day wars will be fought with brains? Leonard picked up his coffee cup. Oh, dear, won't that be rather messy, he said. Vetinari sighed again. Not perhaps as messy as the other sort, he said, trying the coffee. It really was rather good. The ducal coach rolled past the last of the outlying buildings and onto the vast, flat, stow plains. Cherry and Detritus had tactfully decided to ride on the top for the morning, leaving the Duke and Duchess alone inside. Skimmer was indulging in some uneasy class solidarity and riding with the servants for a while. "'Angua seems to have gone into hiding,' said Vimes, watching the cabbage fields pass by. "'Poor girl,' said Sybil. "'The city is not really the place for her.' "'Well, you couldn't wink or carry it out of it with a big pin,' said Vimes. "'And that's the problem, I suppose.' "'Part of the problem,' said Sybil. Vimes nodded. The other part, which no one talked about, was children. Sometimes it seemed to Vimes that everyone knew that Carrot was the true heir to the redundant throne of the city. It just so happened that he didn't want to be. He wanted to be a copper, and everyone went along with the idea. But kingship was a bit like a grand piano— you could put a cover over it, but you could still see what shape it was underneath. Vimes wasn't sure what you got if a human and a werewolf had kids. Possibly you just got someone who had to shave twice a day around full moon and occasionally felt like chasing carts. And when you remembered what some of the city's rulers had been like, a known werewolf as ruler ought to hold no terrors. It was the buggers who looked human all the time that were the problem. That was just his view, though. Other people might see things differently. No wonder she'd gone off to think about things. He realised he was looking unseeing out the window. To take his mind off this, he opened the package of papers that Skimmer had handed him just as he got on the coach. It was called Briefing Material. The man seemed to be an expert on Uberwald, and Vimes wondered how many other clerks there were in the patrician's palace, beavering away, becoming experts. He settled down glumly and began to read. The first page showed the crest of the unholy empire that had once ruled most of the huge country. Vimes couldn't recall much about it, except that one of the emperors once had a man's hat nailed to his head for a joke. Uberwald seemed to be a big, cold, depressing place, so perhaps people would do anything for a laugh. The crest was altogether too florid for Vimes's taste, and was dominated by a double-headed bat. The first document was entitled The Fat-Bearing Strata of the Schmalzberg Region, The Land of the Fifth Elephant. He knew the legend, of course. There had once been five elephants, not four, standing on the back of Great Atuin, but one had lost its footing or had been shaken loose and had drifted off into a curved orbit before eventually crashing down a billion tonnes of enraged pachyderm with a force that had rocked the entire world and split it up into the continents people knew today. The rocks that fell back had covered and compressed the corpse and the rest, after millennia of underground cooking and rendering, was fat history. According to legend, gold and iron and all the other metals were also part of the carcass, 
After all, an elephant big enough to support the world on its back wasn't going to have ordinary bones, was it? The notes in front of him were a little more believable, talking about some unknown catastrophe that had killed millions of the mammoths, bison and giant shrews and then covered them over, pretty much like the fifth elephant in the story. There were notes about old troll sagas and legends of the dwarfs. Possibly ice had been involved, or a flood. In the case of the trolls, who were believed to be the first species in the world, maybe they'd been there and seen the elephants trumpeting across the sky. The result, anyway, was the same. Everyone, well, everyone except Vimes, knew the best fat came from the Schmalzberg wells and mines. It made the whitest, brightest candles, the creamiest soap, the hottest, cleanest lamp oil. The yellow tallow from Ankh-Morpork's boilers didn't come close. Vimes didn't see the point. Gold, now that was important. People died for it. And iron. Ankh-Morpork needed iron. Timber, too. Stone, even. Silver, now, was very... He flicked back to a page headed Natural Resources, and under Silver read, Silver has not been mined in Uberwald since the Diet of Bugs in AM 1880 and the possession of the metal is technically illegal. There was no explanation. He made a note to ask Inigo. After all, where you got werewolves, didn't you need silver? And things must have been pretty bad if everyone had to eat insects. Anyway, silver was useful too, but fat was just... fat. It was like biscuits or tea or sugar. It was just something that turned up in the cupboard. There was no style to it, no romance... It was stuff in tubs. A note was clipped to the next page. He read, The fifth elephant as a metaphor also appears in the Uberwald languages. Depending on context, it can mean a thing that does not exist, as we would say, clatchy and mist, a thing that is other than it seems, and a thing that, while unseen, controls events, in the same way that we would use the term eminence grise. I wouldn't, thought Vimes. I don't use words like that. Constable Shoe, said Constable Shoe when the door of the bootmaker's factory was opened. Homicide! You come about Mr Sonky, said the troll who'd opened the door. Warm, damp air blew out into the street, smelling of incontinent cats and sulphur. I meant I'm a zombie, said Red Shoe. I find that telling people right away saves embarrassing misunderstandings later on. But coincidentally, yes, we've come about the alleged deceased. We? said the troll, making no comment about Reggie's grey skin and stitch marks. Didn't hear big jobs. The troll looked down, not a usual direction in Ankh-Morpork, where people preferred not to see what they were standing in. Oh, he said, and took a few steps backwards. Some people said that gnomes were no more belligerent than any other race, and this was true. However, the belligerence was compressed down into a body six inches high, and like many things when they are compressed, had an inclination to explode. Constable Swires had been on the force only for a few months, but news had gone around, and already he inspired respect, or at least the bladder-trembling terror that can pass for respect on these occasions. "'Don't you stand there gawping! Where's yon stiff?' said Swires, striding into the factory. We put him in the cellar, said the troll, and now we got half a tonne of liquid rubber running to waste. He'd be livid about that, if it was alive, of course. Why is it wasted? 
said Reg. Got all thick and manky, hasn't it? I'm going to have to dump it later on, and that's not easy. We were supposed to be dipping a load of ribbed magical delights today, too, but all the ladies felt faint when I hauls him out of the vet, and they went off home. Red Shoe looked shocked. He was not, for various reasons, a patron of Mr Sonky's wares, romance not being a regular feature of the life of the dead. But surely the world of the living had some standards, didn't it? You employ ladies here, he said. The troll looked surprised. Yeah, sure. It's good steady work. They're good workers, too. Always laughing and telling jokes while they're doing the dipping and packing, especially when we're doing the big boys. The troll sniffed. Personally, I don't understand her jokes. Them big boys are bloody good value for a penny, said Buggy Swires. Reg Shoe stared at his tiny partner. There was just no way that he was going to ask the question. But Swires must have seen his expression. After a bit of work with yon scissors, you won't find a better Macintosh in the whole city, said the gnome, and laughed nastily. Constable Shoe sighed. He knew that Mr Vimes had an unofficial policy of getting ethnic minorities into the watch. As a member of the dead community, Red Shoe naturally thought of himself as an ethnic majority. But he wasn't sure this was wise in the case of gnomes, even though there was admittedly no ethnic group that was more minor. They had an inbuilt resistance to rules. This didn't just apply to the law, but to all the invisible rules that most people obeyed unthinkingly, like... Do not attempt to eat this giraffe, or do not headbutt people in the ankle just because they won't give you a chip. It was best to think of Constable Swires simply as a small independent weapon. You'd better show us the d d the person who is currently vitally challenged, he said. They were led downstairs. What was hanging from a beam there would have frightened the life out of anyone who wasn't already a zombie. Sorry about that, said the troll pulling it down and tossing it into a corner, where it coiled into a rubbery heap. "'What the heel was it?' said Constable Swires. "'We had to pull the rubber off of him,' said the troll. "'Sets quick, see, once you get it out in the air.' "'Hey, that's the biggest sonky I ever saw,' chuckled Buggy. "'A whole body sonky. Reckon that's the way he wanted to go.' Reg looked at the corpse. He didn't mind being sent out on murders, even messy ones. The way he saw it, dying was really just a career change. Been there, done that, worn the shroud. And then you got over it and got on with your life. Of course, he knew that many people didn't, for some reason, but he thought of them as not prepared to make the effort. There was a ragged wound in the neck. Any next of kin, he said. He got a brother in Ubervelt. We've sent word, the troll added, on the clacks. It cost twenty dollars. That's murder. Can you think of any reason why someone would kill him? The troll scratched his head. Well, cause they wanted him dead, I reckon. That's a good reason. And why would anyone want him dead, do you think? Red Shoe could be very, very patient. Has there been any trouble? Business ain't been so good, I know that. Really? I'd have thought you'd be coining money here. Oh, yeah, that's what you'd think, but not everything people calls a sonky is made by us, see? It's to do with us becoming... The troll's face screwed up with cerebral effort. Generic. 
Lots of other buggers are jumping up and down on de bandwagon, and they got better plant and new ideas, like like making them in cheese and onion flavour, and with bells on and stuff like that. Mr Sonky won't have nothing to do with that sort of thing, and that's been costing us sales. I can see this would worry him, said Reg, in a keep-on-talking tone of voice. He's been locking himself in his office a lot. Oh, why's that? He's the boss. You don't ask the boss. But he did say that there was a special job coming up and that had put us back on our feet. Really? said Reg, making a mental note. What kind of job? Dunno. You don't ask the boss, said Reg. Right. I suppose no one saw the murder, did they? Once again, the troll screwed up its enormous face in thought. The murderer? Yeah, and probably Mr Sonky. Was there a third party? I dunno. I never get invited to them things. Apart from Mr Sonky and the murderer? Said Chu, still as patient as the grave. Was there anyone else here last night? Dunno, said the troll. Thank you. You've been very helpful, said Shu. We'll have a look round if you don't mind. Sure. The troll went back to his vat. Red Shu hadn't expected to find anything and was not disappointed. But he was thorough. Zombies usually are. Mr Vimes had told him never to get too excited about clues, because clues could lead you a dismal dance. They could become a habit. You ended up finding a wooden leg, a silk slipper and a feather at the scene of a crime and constructing an elegant theory involving a one-legged ballet dancer and a production of Chicken Lake. The door to the office was open. It was hard to tell if anything had been disturbed. Shu got the impression that the mess was normal. A desk was awash with paperwork, Mr Sonky having followed the usual put-it-down-somewhere method of filing. A bench was covered with samples of rubber, bits of sacking, large bottles of chemicals and some wooden moulds that Reg refrained from looking at too closely. Did you hear Constable Littlebottom talking about that museum theft when we came on duty today, Buggy? He said, opening a jar of yellow powder and sniffing it. No. I did, said Reg. He put the lid on the sulphur again and sniffed the air of the factory. It smelled of liquid rubber, which is very much like the smell of incontinent cats. And some things stick in the mind, he said. Special job, eh?